Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online. If you are here for the first time, either in person or online, we are in a series called The Kingdom is Near. We're in week seven of this series where we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. And if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to go ahead and turn with me to chapter two as we continue through this series. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah 2 and 3 today, and uh, next week we'll look at another portion of Nehemiah. And then we're going to take a pause as we celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving together, and and we're going to take a pause and look at that uh, in Scripture, and then we'll come back to Nehemiah at the beginning of the year. How many people are excited for Christmas? A lot more people here, a few here. You guys, I'm not sure. Are you the ones that are upset that no one's looking at Thanksgiving? Because that's an argument out there right now. I mean, that's a big, that's a big problem out there. Too many people are arguing about Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, well, it's coming. And so we're going to continue in our series. As you're turning there, let me uh, just uh, make mention of a few more things. Operation Christmas Child, where we have partnered with Samaritan's Purse, and we've done this for years. You guys have always been incredibly generous and uh, partnered with us in that. Thank you guys for bringing back your shoeboxes. If for some reason you did not get your shoebox back today, uh, we still are able to take them over the next couple of days. We are a collection center for all the other area organizations and churches, and so we'll be collecting those through the week and sending them out. So if for some reason you weren't able to get it to us today, uh, but you do want to still drop it off, uh, you can do that this week, uh, but everything will be leaving by the end of the week, okay? Uh, But thank you guys. You guys have always been... uh, gone above and beyond, and you've uh, been generous, which leads me to the next thing that you've always been generous in, uh, sacrificially generous, and that's our joy project. It's uh, it's a uh, time, and if you didn't see the video before our service started uh, from Pastor Tyler, uh, the joy project is something that's very special um, as we invite you to uh, give an offering above and beyond, and everything that's given towards the joy project goes out into the areas around us. There are strategic partners, local schools, uh, into the the families of our church and the, and the families around our church. And so uh, that kicks off today. And there's a, a little handout like this, a little flyer. Uh, if you'd like more information, uh, they're in the back in the kiosk and at the Welcome Center. You can grab one of those on your way out. Uh, but the Joy Project is something that's been uh, used by God in and through our people and our church to really minister to those uh, this time of year. And so I would invite you uh, to be praying about your involvement with that. All right? Okay. Nehemiah chapter 2, as we come out of last week's text, Nehemiah has gone out, he's inspected the walls and the gates, he's seen the destruction, he's seen the ruins, Uh, he didn't tell anyone uh, that he was going out, he hadn't shared with anyone really why he was even there, what God has called him uh, into doing, but now as we get into our text, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, which will wrap up chapter 2, it's time. It's time for Nehemiah to now share with the people what God is doing. So join me, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, to get started. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 18. 
And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Verse 19. But when Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, in some way, as we get started here in our text, Nehemiah in some way has assembled the people. We're not told how he does it, but somehow he's gathered this group of people, and he begins to cast the vision. He begins to speak the vision to them of what God has laid on his heart and what God has led him back to do here with the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And he starts casting this vision. It's something to notice here in verse 17. Notice how he identifies with the people. He doesn't cast the vision from, from far off and from far away. He casts the vision with him involved in it. Trouble we are in. Look at verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we are in. He says, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That's first person plural. He's including himself. He doesn't come as this great official from Susa, which we know from chapter 1 was the winter retreat of the Persian Empire, of the kings of the Persian Empire. And he doesn't come and and he doesn't like berate them about what have you been doing you guys live here but what have you been doing the gates the walls everything's been torn down it's been it's in ruin it's in it's rubble it's a mess what have you guys been doing don't you see the trouble if you don't have a gate and you don't have walls people look down on you they mock you they ridicule that's derision what have you guys been doing and he doesn't come like that and he doesn't say you know listen to me i'm going to help you he doesn't do any of that because that's not motivating that's not inspiring he includes himself he's like this This is for us. He was among them in this because it's personal. One of the things that we've learned about Nehemiah over the years is that this is personal to him. This is personal. This is about God's glory. And the work that God calls us to do, do we make it personal or we just see it as a a routine or something that is is an obligation, not an opportunity? And Nehemiah sees this as as both. This is what I'm called to do, but this is an opportunity for God's glory to be known to the peoples and the surrounding peoples. That's why he includes him in it. What's he doing here? He's motivating by appealing to the sense of who they are. That's his inclusion, right? The sense of who they are. Who are they? They're the Jewish people. They're the Jews. They're they're God's chosen people. They were the people of God. And he's appealing to this sense of disgrace and this sense of derision, ridicule, mockery that they're held in, that the other surrounding groups and tribes and nations look at them. And he's saying to them, remember who you are. He's appealing to their identity. And he's saying, remember who you are. We're the people of God. We are the the covenant people of the Lord. He's trying to show them that there's a reason. There's a reason here for us to do this. It's not just for protection and security. It's, It's for God's glory, the God that has called us his own. And isn't that what we find over and over again in the New Testament? It's a motivation for action over and over again in the New Testament. Where we're reminded, remember who you are. Remember that you're blood-bought. 
that your blood-bought people of God, that, that Jesus gave over his life, that he paid the price for us. It is a, a, a high price, a heavy price, a big price, right? He was sacrificial in that. We are the blood-bought people of God, that we are in that as disciples, believers, in repentance and faith, we are the children of God, sons of the king, daughters of the king, that we are the children of God, which means we are the heirs of God, and we are co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The New Testament, Jesus uses that as a motivating factor to move us forward, to propel us, to compel us into the work that God has for us. Because guilt, guilt and shame is a terrible motivator, right? It's terrible. It's not sustainable. And it's not, it's not really usable for true transformation. It's a terrible motivator. But identity, identity action-oriented we want others not only ourselves because of our identity in God through Christ sons or daughters beloved cherished all the labels that God says that we are children heirs co-heirs that isn't just so we can stand out and say look at who we are now as as believers in Christ that is so that you and I can then invite others to know what we know our identity is true not in any other person or any other thing in the world but it's true and found in truth who is Jesus and so Nehemiah is doing that here right he's using that as a way to motivate the people remember who you are May we always remember who we are. If we start to get sidetracked, we start to drift, we come back, we get stirred again by who we are. And he says in verse 18, and he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Now we remember this from an earlier verse. If you weren't here again, verse 8. An earlier verse said, The good hand of my God was upon me. And we see it again. This is, this is Nehemiah speaking what he'd already known to the people. That's not just you know, motivation for who they are. It's motivation that not only are you God's children, but this is God's work. This is God's work. This is the work that he has blessed. This is the work that he has ordained. This is God's plan. Nehemiah's like, listen, <laughs> this is God's plan. This is God's desire. This is, this is the work of God moving forward to rebuild. This is God's work. This is what God wants to do. This is the Lord's doing. I mean, what would we do? Think about it. What would we do for God if we knew we couldn't fail? Because God's work always prevails. God's plan always prevails. God's kingdom always expands. God's kingdom lasts forever. He's saying to them, he's trying to motivate them. Not only are you God's children, we are God's children. This is God's work. Rebuilding the walls was important. Having the gates was important, critical actually for security. But the real theme here is the sufficiency of God. Nehemiah uses that. Again, pointing people, not to himself, but to God. His mind dwells constantly on the greatness of God, and he wants all the others that are there with him to do the same thing. You are his, and this is his work. Think about that combination. He's sharing with them that in verse 18, as he talks about this, as he shares what happened and why he's there, He's trying to remind them and show them, hey, I didn't get here because I'm 
skilled, say, in persuasion. Like, I, I didn't get to Jerusalem because of that. And I, and I didn't get here really because the king was a generous benefactor. Although, you'll see in verse 18, he shared the words that the king had spoken to him to the people. Because he also knew that they would need to hear that. But really, he's saying, and I got here because God was sovereign. And God's the sovereign provider of me coming and me with the materials, as we've learned. So since God had done all that, he could certainly complete the task that he sent me here to do. Which is what we love about the New Testament as believers in Christ. We know through the New Testament's promise that the good work that God began in us, he will complete in us. This is Nehemiah using that same, that same principle, that same biblical principle and structure for his people to hear that this was God's work. He's provided. He's begun this. He will complete this. That's motivating. That's stirring that God is doing this because of what he's already done. So, so what Nehemiah was doing, and this is something that, that we often need to be reminded of too. He was having them look back at the faithfulness of God so that they could see the present and into the future that God in his faithfulness in my past is going to complete this through my future. How important is that for me and you? How important is that for us? How often do we wonder, is God really going to do that work? Is God really going to continue to walk with me? Is God really going to continue to lead me, guide me, provide? And we get so consumed and, and kind of tunneled into the right now, we forget how faithful God was to us in the past. That's, that principle is throughout Scripture. We see what God has done for us. We believe in faith that God has done this. We think about our expansion. We believe that God's leading us. And we look at the... the the faithfulness of God over the years. Next year will be 25 years for our church. And to see God's faithfulness in leading us through the ups and downs of life and ministry and leadership and impact and influence in the community and beyond. And to know that this is the work that God began 25 years ago. He will complete this work by faith. So we're trusting in that. It'll be for his glory and our good. So we want to be a part of that. It's privilege. It's a blessing to be a part of that. So that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's telling the people that God has already done this. He's stirring them for what he's about to do. His appeal then wasn't negative. It was positive because he focused on the glory and greatness of God. And when you think about it, though, as he's doing this, when they respond in verse 18, look back with me. They say, it says at the end, and they said, let us rise up and build, which a lot of commentators and scholars say that's a a pretty astonishing response to the, the small, quick little vision cast. It's a small vision cast. It's like one sentence of this is what God's doing, and he's inviting us into it. He's calling us into it, and they respond, let us rise up and build. It's, it's amazing that they do this. I mean, think of what they could have said. They could have been apathetic. They could have just sat back and said, you know, no thanks. I mean, we've been living in this rubble, in this mess, in this brokenness for a long time, and it just could have stayed there. How often or how has that happened in our lives? How have we seen that in the lives of those around us who have went into a season of brokenness and rubble and mess in their lives or their families or their work or their, just the things in, in, in and around them, and because they've been in it so long, they can't see anything else because their eyes are looking down and not up. And this is what, this is why they're saying this was an amazing response because they've been in this for a while, yet they, they hear the stirring. They, 
They lift their eyes up and they say, let us rise up and build. They also could have just looked at Nehemiah and said, we've already tried that and it didn't work. Ezra chapter 4. We tried to do this, but the authorities, in fact, the same authority that stopped us, you're now telling us has given you permission to do it. But they respond, they rise up to build. Nehemiah's leadership is different from other worldly leaders. It's different from other leaders out there. It's different because he's not drawing attention to himself. How often have we heard from other leaders, look at me, follow me. Nehemiah is saying, here's who we need to pay attention to. It's not me, it's God. He's drawing attention to God, that this is God's plan. God's going to give it to us. And we're going to see that play out over the study through this book. This is the Lord's work. This is God's work that we're involved in, that we've been asked to be involved in, that we've been privileged and blessed to be involved in. And so that was the motivation. And we read at the end, so much was that the motivation that they say, so they strengthen their hands for the good work. See, they... They've come to a realization that this is a good work. Not because the work was good, but because the person who gave it to them was good. Capital G. It's a good work. And there was an immediate response from them. And Nehemiah's confidence in God was infectious. And his confidence in God's people to respond like he believed they would respond. It's encouraging. Nehemiah being used by God to lift the eyes of others up above the rubble, above the mess, above the destruction, and to see God, and to see God's purpose in their lives, to focus their hearts and their minds on glory, not their glory, but glory, capital G. How about us? How about us? Are we confidence building in others? Do we allow God to use us to serve others by lifting up their eyes to see who they are in God, the purpose for their life. Is God using us like he's using Nehemiah right now? Are we being that vessel for God to those who are in our circles? And here's the thing, and this is something not only for us to preach to ourselves, but to share with others. No matter how big the problems may be, God's bigger. He's bigger. That's not to diminish or, or to negate the challenges and the heartache and the struggle of life, but, but it's to help ourselves and others see that God's bigger. Can we be a people that helps others look past the rubble and the brokenness that's in front of them because it's so easy to just be consumed by it that we lift their eyes up, see, see Jesus. No matter how big the problems, God's bigger. Speaking of problems, look at verses 19 and 20. In verse 19 comes a problem. Nehemiah shared the vision. He's led the people. He stirred them up. They're ready to go to work, and now we have a problem. We have opposition. And let me say it like this. Whenever the people of God, whenever the people of God do the work of God, it will always stir up the enemies of God. Whenever the people of God do the work of God, it will always stir up the enemies of God. And one of the main attacks or strategies of the enemy whenever the people of God are trying to do the work of God is to belittle with ridicule, with mockery, which is what, which is what Nehemiah has been talking about here. 
And the question that they always throw at you is, who do you think you are? Have you ever had that question presented to you as you try to follow in the godly plan given to us through his revelation of Scripture that this is my life, this is the way I'm supposed to lead my life, this is the way I'm supposed to make decisions in my life, and then someone comes in to oppose that. And the first question is, they attack your identity. Who do you think you are? Which is one of the reasons why we know that Nehemiah, being led by God to speak this vision cast to the people, was about their identity. Who do you think you are? Because what happens when someone asks us that? If we're not careful, we'll start to really wonder, well, who do I think I am? I mean, I know my mess. I know the person in the mirror. I know my closet. I know what's in there. I know, I know that. Who do I think I am to be a part of this? How many times have you, have you been distracted? How many times have you been dissuaded by the enemy saying that? sentence to you or that question see when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start to only look at ourselves which is the distraction that the enemy uses the strategy is to get it off of Christ and onto ourselves we start to wonder about who we really think we are but but in doing that we start to forget who God says we are and not what others or what the world says we are my identity is settled in Christ through his his life, his death, his resurrection, my identity is in Jesus. But when I start to wonder, when I'm attacked like that, I start to forget. I have this ability to forget the really the important things that we need to remember. But then we remember the things we need to forget. You ever had that problem? And so this enemy comes at us and uses this powerful tool to distract us from the calling in us and the calling in front of us. We know this. Here's the thing. We know the work that God has for us. They knew the work that God had for them was, was impossible without them. In fact, if we're doing things that, doesn't, that we, we can kind of all do on our own, we don't have dependence on God to do them, it may not be big enough, which is why in this calling that God has for us and our expansion, we believe this was his calling and this was his place pushing us into a more deeper place of dependence. But the people, they knew. Like, we know the blessed work that God has for us. It's an impossible work, right? And we do well to have the humility to know that, that we are inadequate to do this work on our own that God has for us. But here's the key. God's adequate. God's adequate to do this through us when we put our hands to the good work. And another attack of the enemy, as we see here, is misre misrepresenting the motives of God's people. I mean, the attack that we see there in verse 19 is, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Are you rebelling? Misrepresenting the work and the motives of God's people. The enemies of God can't understand the noble reasons for serving God. They're blinded by the work of the flesh and pride that rages. And it's hard to believe in any godly motives in the life of a believer by an unbeliever until their eyes are open as ours have been opened through the grace and the gospel and repentance and faith of G in Jesus Christ. That's our charge to the gospel. It's not that when that opposition comes that we just bow, you know, bow up and get in a prideful place, but it's us to recognize they can't see the motive because they don't have the eyes open like we do because the scales fell off when you and I came into a presence and a conversion of Christ and our repentance and faith. Now we see, but they can't see. So our charge again, Jesus says, is present the gospel. Go around the world and tell the world about me. 
And that's so that they can see as we see. But until then, those that are the enemies of God, because they don't see as we do, they're going to come and try to misrepresent the motives of God's people. That's why we got work to do. So we don't give up. That's why we got work to do. And Nehemiah responds in verse 20. Look at his response. He says, Then I reply to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He doesn't answer their lies or engage in a conversation with them. Nor does he just ignore them. He doesn't get in a quarrel and a fight with them, but he doesn't ignore them either. What's the first thing he does? He exalts the God who called him to do the work. That's our first response. This is God's work given to me by his word to do. This is God's work. You see, Nehemiah was concerned that God wouldn't get the glory if he wasn't careful in how he responded to these things. And he wanted to make sure God got the glory in the project. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew, and he wanted everyone to know, even those who opposed, that God had everything in control because this opposition came when all the people were there. And he wanted everyone to know, listen, God has it under control. Do you believe that? you believe that for your life? God has it under control? That he's got it all under control. He does. He does. Nehemiah wanted them to know that. He wanted those who were opposing, but he also wanted the others to know, listen, God's got it under control. He's going to do what only he can do. The work of God, no matter what it is, will often suffer opposition. Persecution, though, is often the facet with which the advancement of the kingdom of God has happened. If you study church history over the years and through the centuries, you will notice that the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God expanded quicker and and faster and, and into more areas through persecution than it did through Jubilee. And so we don't see the opposition as something that's going to end or deflate or defeat. Rather, we see it that God's going to do something we couldn't even understand or know through it. And surely there will be opposition every time you do God's work. And what Nehemiah is doing here is providing the powerful motivation that we need not be afraid. The good hand of God is upon us. He is with us. And we come to the end of chapter 2, and we move into chapter 3. And I know what you're thinking. Wait, we're doing all chapter 3 today? It's 32 verses. He just took 25 minutes for 4. It's late already. It's 11.15. No, if I'm prepared for 32 verses. No. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is one that is often passed over. Uh, it includes a list of names and locations around the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, one, the reason it's passed over <laughs> is because of that. And one, I can't pronounce them. So it's one of the reasons why we're not digging deep into it. Secondly, finally got you guys to laugh. It's been a rough go, so. And two... Some have a hard time drawing application or lesson from it. 
But as we look at chapter 3, and I'm not going to be too far off from some of this, but as we look at chapter 3 more in a summary, I want to point out a few things. We come to this point at the end of chapter 2, and what we've done up to this point is we've seen Nehemiah. We've wept with him. We've prayed with him. We've seen him get organized. We've seen him travel. We've seen him inspect. We've seen him vision cast or motivate. We've seen him rebuke, right? And now, as we begin chapter chapter 3, it begins the actual work. It's time to move, and we see this happening. And what I like to do is just kind of in the remainder of our time, look at the big picture lessons that are found here that we can learn through chapter 3. Certainly not an all-inclusive list, but a few things. Here's one of them. The text reveals that Nehemiah has, we're learning more about Nehemiah, which is an incredible character study as it is, but one of the things we see about him, he has this extraordinary gift of administration and organization. And we see that right from the beginning because he's able to mobilize and empower around 40 to 45 separate groups of people to the task of rebuilding the wall and the gates. There's no doubt that he kind of understood this as he did his inspection during the first part of chapter 2 that he realized what was going to have to happen as far as organization and uh, administration. And so we learned that about Nehemiah. He is extremely gifted by God in that area. One of the other things about the text that it shows how the people working together can accomplish more than if just one person tried to do all the work. We say this a lot when we think about ministry. Um, we're better together than alone. We're better together than alone. And this principle is being played out as we see it here in chapter 3. And what I would encourage you to do, whether you have the Bible on an electronic device or or a hard copy, is I encourage you, every time you see the phrases next to him, next to them, after him, after them, that you would underline it. Those expressions are recorded around 28 times in this one chapter. And the principle is that every person, every person, every disciple of Christ, every person is to be and can be involved in ministry because everyone can have a job and all the jobs are significant. It's a biblical principle that it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us to do what God is calling us to do here. It's going to take all of us in different ways and in different forms. It's going to take all of us. A few weeks ago, though, our children's ministry, um, in our children's ministry, our leaders had some fun and dressed up on a Sunday morning. I want to show you a picture of some of our student leaders that are serving and showing that all of us have an opportunity to serve. It's teenagers dressing up and acting silly and embarrassing themselves for the service and the ministry of God. It's not, no, no, think about that, it's not something normally teenagers do. This group of teenagers, and I'm proud of them, and I'm proud of all that. We have a lot of students serving in the tech booth and around. We have a lot of them. It's reminding us, but it's also stirring us, hopefully motivating us as adults to think about our, our, our part in this as a, as a son of the king, as a daughter of the king, that all of us can have a, have a play in this. All of us can have a part in this. All of us are called to have a part in this, and all the parts are significant. We see that from chapter 3. One other thing I'll point out about chapter 3, you're going to notice something's missing in chapter 3 as you read through it, because I encourage you to read through it. You're going to notice something's missing, and that's God. God's not mentioned in chapter 3. He's not mentioned in chapter 3, but it doesn't mean he's absent, because we know God works even when we don't see him. God's at work even when we don't see him. We sing a song like that. And God was certainly at work in the lives and in the hands and the feet of the people that are listed in chapter 3. 
And what I want to take you to is verse 1 of chapter 3. And look at verse 1. It's the only verse we're going to read from chapter 3 because it's the only one I practice to get the names right. Verse 1, chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and set its doors. And they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. It's no accident that the list of the work starts at the sheep gate. It's another way of saying, put God first. Put God first. This gate was close to the northern, northeastern corner uh, of, the, of the wall. This gate provided easy access to the temple that was there. And was given this name because all the sheep that entered through this gate are the ones that were to be sacrificed in the temple. So by beginning here, Nehemiah is establishing that their relationship with God was central. This was the most important place to start for them. That we put God first in this. That they had a time of dedication right at the beginning of the construction project. And we're actually going to see, if you, if you read through chapter 3, you'd see they come all the way back around. We must make sure you and I, as children of God, are dedicated to God before we begin working for Him. It's one of the reasons why we felt God leading us to spend four months in prayer and getting our heart and our mind and our postures right with God, putting Him first so that we would be ready for the work. This is critical, right? That we don't want to make the mistake of focusing so much on the work that we, and the task that we forget God. But that's so easy, right? Even the good things we can get so, so kind of inside of, in, in mesmerized or consumed by, we can get, get so focused on that we forget who gave it to us. God's not impressed with our labor. He wants our heart. And that's why worship must always precede work. Worship must always precede work. Settle that question in your own life. Have we settled that in our lives? Are we surrendered and completely committed, devoted? And if you are, what I would say to you is get ready to work. And if you're not, my question is what's holding you back? Come to Jesus. Let me give us a few words to finish that describe the people in this chapter. And I'm going to invite you again to write these down. And as you read through the chapter, see... See them as you read this text. We know that they are a people that were quick to action. Notice some of these other traits about God's people. Voluntarily. Voluntarily. No one forced them into work. No one. They had a vision cast. Nehemiah helped in motivating the work of God's glory. And the people responded with humility and service voluntarily. So we think about Jesus came for us. No one forced Jesus to come to us. The Father didn't force him. The Spirit didn't force him. Jesus came for us. He volunteered his life for us to make a way home for us through repentance and faith. Here's another one, sacrificially. The people that helped build, rebuild the walls and the gates, they, they made sacrifices to serve. And we're going to see more of this in chapter 5. But many left families. They left, they left their, their wives and their kids, and they left families. They left the fields that they worked in that helped provide for the food, for their tables, all that, to work on rebuilding. And with these sacrifices, God was lifted high as the work was completed. Think about Jesus. He gave it all. He sacrificed it all. He didn't hold anything back. Anonymity. 
anonymity. There's a list of names and families, and you'll see that in chapter 3. But what you'll also see is a long list of people not named specifically, only in general. For instance, the priests, the men of Jericho, the temple servants. It took all these people together, all of them, some named, some not named, but it took all of them, and the ones that weren't named, they did it, did the work anyways without any desire to be named, right? They commit to this work not wanting to make a name for themselves, but to glorify God, to make a name, to make the name of God known again, right? The kingdom that we are a part of in building and expanding is not our kingdom. The things that God has given us to steward as a church here is not for me or for you or for any of our names. It's for his name. Diversity. Diversity. People from all walks of life, various places, occupations, etc. They represent a whole age range of people. They represent a whole socioeconomic spectrum of people. They represent a whole group of different people in different relationships, the relationship status. Some were skilled in the temple service, some skilled in fields. They all had different skills, right? But what do they do? They all come together in that diversity to answer God's call. Jesus invites all people to himself. Heaven will be all nations, tribes, tongues, full of people with different skills, different appearances, different everything coming together. Solidarity. And I mentioned this kind of before, but there's one purpose. There's one purpose, no matter what part they work on, which location that they're at, and they're all spread out, right? There's one purpose. They have the big picture in mind, and the big picture is the kingdom of God. It's, Nehemiah will make sure of that because that's what he is about. There's solidarity in that. Jesus had, had redemption. Had, he had redemption for us. He brought redemption for us for God the Father's glory, for our good. Responsibility. So many areas. There's so many areas around the walls and the gates. No one was expected to do everything, but everyone was expected to do something to keep up with their responsibility. Some work right in front of their home. Some move down the wall. Some, and you can see that as you work through chapter 3. The task was completed, though, because they all, as a whole, took responsibility. Greatness in the kingdom of God is marked with responsibility. Jesus never shied away from his calling, from his purpose to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve, but to live again for us. And then lastly, devotedly. They were devoted. Once they start working, as we see here at the end of chapter 2, end of chapter 3, once they start working, they work day and night for 52 days until the work is done. That's a showing of devotion. Devotion and dependability must be character traits of disciples. And Jesus, as we read in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that once he set his face to Jerusalem, he never stopped until he finished the work. And he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. That he tells us that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all the nations. And when that is, when that's done, then comes the end. Then comes his return. 
And it's through preaching and teaching of the gospel, it's through the work of discipleship and the ministry of the gospel that God makes a place for his name to dwell, right? That's a big task, and he's invited us into that. He calls us into it. He demands that every Christian actually participate in this work of the ministry. It's part of it, but, but in, that, in that we should feel propelled and compelled by God's love to do that because we want others to experience what we experience. And we need a wholehearted response from every citizen of the kingdom of heaven for this work is big. It's a big task. No one staying on the sidelines. No one having a passive or consumer mentality about the gospel, but everyone looking for a job and work to do for the kingdom. We're going to see the world transformed by Christ and his gospel. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us. Everything that we believe God is doing is going to take all of us. By his grace, you and I as Christians, if you're a Christian, he's made us citizens a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. He's giving to us in that all the blessings, all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. And the scripture says yes and amen. He's given those to us. Why is he given that to us? Our identity is settled. Our future is secure. Our empowering through blessing and promise is there for us so we can persevere so we can press on, so we can run the race. We can run the race no matter where God has called us. We can run the race of faith no matter where our role may be. We can run the race of faith even though it might feel like it's insignificant. God calls us to keep working for his glory and to build his kingdom because we have a city that one day, one day we will be in and the founder of the city, the maker and builder of the city is God Almighty. And until that day, he says in my good hand, God's good hand is upon us. Let's pray. Father, God, we look forward to that day that we are home in the city that you have built. Our minds, our hearts, un- incapable of understanding or, or grasping just how beautiful and majestic and holy and perfect the home that you have made for us and all while everything about it might be just absolutely pristine the greatest the greatest part of it is that we're home with Jesus our Savior and our King God as we walk home to you we're reminded that that you're in control that you have the authority. We do well to be humbled to that. We do well to be reminded and strengthened by that. And God, for those that are drifting, those that have found themselves far away from you, God, call them home. May they come home today. May they turn from that darkness and that that road of destruction, may they turn and may they see the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ looking at them with those beautiful eyes to say, come home, I'm right here. I'm right here. I know you've went, I know you've went really far, but I'm right here. God, lead them to grasp the hand of Christ. Lead them to know the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus as they repent, as they believe in him. May they come home. May they join other brothers and sisters in walking 
home to you. And as we do, may we just trust in who you are and the work that you're doing, that you will complete it. God, we're so blessed and privileged to be a part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.